0: The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The gospel of Mark is believed to be the oldest written testimony of Jesus Christ in existence. We believe that Mark was the first gospel to be written, and the other gospels used it as a foundation to write their own gospels, which makes it pretty special when we open up to this one. Of course, that's not confirmed by Scripture, but it is church tradition. And I'll explain why right now we believe that Mark was written first. And I I tend to hold to this position, although I'm not going to fight with you if you hold something else, Uh, It's one of what is called the synoptic gospels. we got four gospels, meaning the the genre of gospel in the Bible. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John is very unique. John, uh, the church historian said, was a spiritual gospel. He intentionally wrote different from the other three to to make different points and especially to emphasize the theological and cosmic significance of Jesus. The other three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are called the synoptic gospels. Optic, you're used to seeing that word, has to do with sight or seeing something. And syn is the Greek word syn, S-Y-N, and it's like synergy or synthesis. It means together. So to see together, very, very rough literal translation there, it's the same perspective on the story of Jesus. Because that's what we have. If you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're very, very similar. In fact, only 5% of the Gospel of Mark is not found in either Matthew or Luke. Only 5% of Mark is unique to Mark. And not just the stories that are told, the exact wording is precisely the same and Matthew and Luke even have some differences between themselves that are still uh, the same as, as the gospel of Mark. So this is what gives rise to the belief that Mark was first and that the others actually used it as a foundation to write and flesh out the story more. In fact, Luke chapter 1 verse 1, if you remember, tells us that's exactly what Luke did on purpose. He said, many people have endeavored to write down an account of the gospel, of what happened. So I decided to more or less put them all together, make a comprehensive account of all the stories and put them all together, which if Mark was in existence, it makes perfect sense that Luke would have done that. There are some church traditions that say Matthew was written first and that it was in fact written in Hebrew, but those seem, first of all, less reliable because it's obviously not translated from the Hebrew because it's very similar to Mark and of course to Luke. And also there's really no Uh, No other basis for that other than the church. uh, some church fathers said that. Now, there are some that think the church has abandoned its Jewish heritage or something like that, which I've never quite understood that claim personally, but that really want to emphasize that, well, if Matthew's the Hebrew one, then that's the one that came first. Not necessarily. Uh, It it makes more sense that Mark would have been written and then expanded upon than for Matthew to be written and Mark to then come through and pull a bunch of things out and shorten it. Although, there are some people who believe that. So since Mark is the shortest, what's missing? Well, nothing's crucial that's missing, but there are far fewer teaching passages in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Matthew is really the teaching book of Jesus. Luke as well, but Matthew has those long sections like the Sermon on the Mount or the Olivet Discourse of the teachings of Jesus. Luke has uh, a lot more parables, for example. Mark doesn't have as many parables. He has a lot more, like, it's the stories, man. It's the healings. It's the confrontations with the Pharisees. And most of it will be familiar to you if you've read the other ones. So who wrote this gospel? Now, the top of your Bible right there, it says the gospel according to Mark. So obviously, this is written by Mark. But uh, if you read the book itself, there is no place in there where the author identifies himself. Most books of the Bible are like that, actually. They're technically anonymous. Although, we have unanimous church tradition that ascribes this particular gospel to Mark. And I don't know if I can say every, but almost every, and practically every copy we have of the Gospel of Mark, includes the words kata markon at the top, which would mean according to Mark. As more Gospels were written, it became necessary to identify them by their authors. So this is the unanimous church tradition, especially a man named Papias. Papias is unique because he was preaching and lived right after the turn of the century and was was martyred in the early hundreds AD. He was a direct disciple of John and was the bishop of Hierapolis, which is a, a church that we believe Paul planted. So he... When he says something, you sit up and you pay attention, especially when it comes to church tradition. He identifies this as something that Mark wrote. So does Eusebius, the famous church historian, and Tertullian and all others, the list just goes on. That Mark was the author, specifically, that Mark wrote this gospel according to the teachings of Peter, the apostle. So that means the gospel of Mark is as close to a gospel according to Peter as we are likely to get. It tells us that as Simon Peter preached, Mark was someone that traveled alongside him. And either during Peter's life, he wrote it down, or shortly after Peter's death, he wrote it down. There are varying uh, traditions there. So we can check what the scripture has to say about this guy named Mark, or Marcus, as it would have been at that time, and see what do we know about him. Does that fit the tradition? Well, I've got here a section of verses that tell us about this person named Mark, whose first name actually would have been John. The first place we see him is in Acts chapter 12, verse 12. This is when Peter is imprisoned, and the Lord sends an angel to release him. Do you remember that story? It's a pretty cool story. Well, Peter goes back to this house where they were praying for him. And it says in Acts 12.12, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. So this prayer meeting that they were having for Peter was being held at Mary's house. And this was a Mary whose son was named John, would have been his Hebrew name. And Marcus would have been a Greek name by which he had gone. So that's why uh, you've met maybe somebody named John Mark. It's because it's, it's named after him. So the fact that they have this house, the fact that they have servants, the fact that they can house as many people there, indicates that this would have been a wealthy family, which fits with some of the other things we know about him. Mark chapter 14, verses 51 through 52, is going to give us interesting little story that are not found in the other Gospels, that there was a certain young man who followed after Jesus into the garden and almost got caught by the soldiers. So, Many people believe, and I would be one of them, that that's actually Mark. That Mark is telling this story. And there actually was one more person that almost got caught, but didn't get caught that night. If that is true, that means that perhaps John Mark's house was the actual place where they had the Last Supper. And maybe even the place, if it's the same house, where the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost. So that means Mark was right there in the action of the story, although he was a young man. Colossians chapter 4 verse 10 tells us that he was the cousin of Barnabas. And we know about Barnabas, the son of encouragement, the the man from Cyprus who sold his property and gave it to the church uh, in the book of Acts. And Paul and Barnabas, on their first missionary journey, took John Mark with them. Acts 13 13 tells us that he actually quit halfway through. He was brought along and he went on the first part, which was to Cyprus, which might have been his home as well as Barnabas's. At least he would have had family there. But when they go to the mainland and they start to travel through the region of Galatia, which was, a, we've talked about before, a very horrid mountainous region to travel through, uh, John Mark went home. And Paul was not happy about that. And the next time Paul and Barnabas want to go on a missions trip... And they want to go back to Galatia and see all the churches. In Acts 15, it tells us that Paul and Barnabas split and never worked together again because Barnabas wanted to bring Mark because Barnabas is the son of encouragement. You now, this time, this time, he'll, he'll get it. And Paul, who was much more of a rough and tough kind of dude, as you know, said, uh, no way, I'm not taking this kid who quit halfway through this spoiled rich boy that doesn't want to hike through the mountains. We're going to get beat up, Barnabas. We're going to get imprisoned. We're going to get tortured. You think this kid is going to stick around? And Barnabas said yes, and they fought about it so much that they separated. And that's where Paul started traveling with Silas rather than Barnabas. And this is also around the time Paul picked up Timothy, who probably functioned as kind of the junior partner, as Mark would have. However, later on in 2 Timothy 4, verse 11, when Paul is at the end of his life in Rome, he tells uh, Timothy that Mark is with him in Rome. And Paul says in that verse that Mark is very useful to me for ministry, So you can see that over time, even, even Paul warmed up to Mark, that Mark grew up, right? That he grew up, I think, is a very interesting comparison between Timothy and Mark, who, Mark. Timothy started off awesome, Mark didn't start out so great. But by the end, they were both faithful servants of the Lord, leaders of that second generation. Church history tells us that Mark would go on to lead the church and maybe even found the church in Alexandria, which is in Egypt. And Alexandria became one of, if not the, centers of Christianity for a long time. Christianity was always uh, in the entire empire, but for a time, it was North Africa that was really leading the charge in the Christian religion. And that goes back to Mark's influence, which is pretty exciting. And church history also tells us that Mark died a martyr's death. That there was a procession in the city for one of the gods, and Mark went out into the street and was preaching against it, and they dragged him through the street and tore him to pieces. While he was doing that, so didn't start out so great, but man, did he finish well! Not only that, but he wrote the Gospel of Mark, which is Peter's testimony. History tells us. So, is there anything that would line up to say that that actually happened? There is. In First Peter five thirteen, Peter says that he is there with his son Mark, his my son Mark, not his actual biological son, but his son in the faith. This says Timothy was called Paul's son. I actually saw somebody. Uh, online recently it was not a not even a religious thing at all but the Bible came up somehow and somebody said oh yeah I, I love the book of Timothy because you know that's a, that's Paul's son so it's kind of like a father's words to his son I'm like not his literal son <laughs> but I, I'm just glad they were talking about the Bible at all you know um, but the the trick is in first Peter 5 13 first Peter he says that he's writing from Babylon which is obviously a symbolic name and most people assume that that was Rome it doesn't say Rome, but it probably means Rome. If that's the case, then in 1 Peter, Peter is in Rome with Mark, which would line up exactly with what the tradition tells us, confirming the testimony of the church fathers. And I don't need to tell you much about Simon Peter, I'm sure. Simon Peter was the first leader of the church. He was the apostle to the Jews, like Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. History tells us that he was crucified upside down in Rome under Emperor Nero. And that's, not again, not in the Bible, of course, but that's church tradition. And the question then becomes, did Mark write this before or after the death of Peter? Why does that matter? Well, it just matters for the dating of the book. And we really have about a 15-year range of legitimate options for the dating of Mark, which would be from 40 to 65 A.D. I'm inclined to think it's the earlier part of that time period, and I'll tell you why. Because... If Luke is dependent upon Mark, and it sure seems like he is to some degree, Luke finishes the story with Paul still in Rome. Now, if we can assume that Luke finished the story while Paul was in Rome, that means Paul hasn't been martyred yet. And Paul was murdered around the same time during the same persecution as Peter in the mid-60s AD. Which means there would have had to have been time for Mark to be written and distributed and picked up by Luke and Luke to write this down before Paul was released from his first imprisonment. So, I'm inclined to put that in the maybe the 50s AD. There are some that make a very strong case for a very early date. If Mark wrote this around 40 AD, that's like 10 years after all these things happened. So, so much for the idea that the Gospels evolved over time, huh? Even if you pick the late date, that's, that's only 30 years. Everybody was still around. They could have fact checked him, right? So, this is the Gospel of Mark, written probably not at the behest of Peter. But Mark, who traveled with Peter and heard him preach all the time, wrote his story down. It also might account for some of the harsher treatment of Peter we get in the book of Mark as opposed to the other ones, because Peter could say that. Well, maybe Matthew wouldn't want to put it so strongly. What's unique about the Gospel of Mark? Well, it's got a rapid style of writing. A lot where we see the word immediately in the book of Mark, which is the Greek word euthis. And that just kind of sounds like Peter, doesn't it? And immediately this happened. And then immediately this happened. And that's that's how he writes. He uses the uh, the Greek word kai, which means and, to begin a lot of sentences. Remember when your teacher in class told you you don't begin a sentence with a conjunction? That's bad grammar. Peter did it all the time. So I'm just trying to be more like Peter. That's all. When, when you do that. Uh, it's actually what's called a Semitism. Meaning it is a holdover from Hebrew, which always begins narrative structure with the word and, the conjunction. So, you could put it legitimately to say that Mark is written with a Hebrew accent. It's not that it's bad grammar, but you can tell that the person who wrote it was used to reading, writing, and thinking in Hebrew. It also tells us that it probably was written for a Roman audience, which is unique because Peter was the apostle to the Jews, of course. But the reason we say that is because many times Mark will actually explain the Jewish customs. He'll say, this is why Jesus did that, because the Jews always washed their hands. We don't need to say that to a Jewish audience, but you might need to to a Roman audience. And also, Mark is going to include several Latin words. He'll give the Greek word, and then he'll actually give the Latin word. He'll say, they went to uh, Pontius Pilate's palace, which is his praetorium, which is a Latin word. Now remember, the, the universal language was Greek at this time, but if you're in Rome, they're going to be speaking Latin. So it makes sense that Mark wrote this in Rome alongside Peter. And what's the purpose of this book? Well, it's right what we see there in that first verse. It's to declare the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You might have a footnote right there in that first verse that there are some of our uh, most from our oldest and best copies of the Gospel of Mark don't include the phrase the Son of God, Um, but it's it's most of the manuscripts that we have include it, and also it's true right? I mean, that's kind of the whole theme of the Gospel of Mark, is you're going to see this a lot, is that we're going to see in chapter 1 and chapter 9, God is going to declare Jesus to be his son. In chapter 15, verse 39, the centurion is going to see Jesus and say, truly, this man was the son of God. So that's why most scholars, even those that are of a more skeptical bent, are inclined to include that phrase, the son of God. But there are a few witnesses that don't include it. There are some variations in the text, and that's why you have a footnote there. But It's all about Jesus. It's the good news. The good news. That's what gospel means. The good news about this man, Jesus, who was the Christ, the anointed one. The Hebrew word is Mashiach. It's where we get Messiah from. That the anointed one had come from God, the true son of God. I've got good news about a man named Jesus. Who's Jesus? He was the anointed son of God. (laughs) And you might read that and go, well, You've got my attention. Keep on reading. And it truly is all about him as we go through these Gospels. It's, it's the person of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus, the example that he gives us, the passion that he demonstrated for people and love, his death, his resurrection. And as I like to say, and as a, also a driving force for why we're getting back to this, the, the name Christian gets associated with so many things and gets defined so many different ways by so many different people what is it? It's somebody who follows Jesus. Somebody who lives their life according to the teachings and example of Jesus Christ. And so we need to know Jesus. I used to tell our high school students that you're about to graduate and go to a school where you're going to take an intro to religion class where some bitter professor is going to try to tell you you're an idiot for believing in Christ. You need to be the expert on Jesus in that class. So that when they say wild, crazy things, you can raise your hand and say, that's not true. What's oh, your authority? I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus. I heard somebody else, again, on the internet just today, talking about how Christians need to just kind of let go of the more religious aspects of their religion and think more socially. It's like, you don't understand what this is. You, you are hoping to gain some of the side benefits of it without truly believing. And we can never, we can never move off of that foundation. And up, on top of all these things, guys, it's just sweet to return to the words of Jesus himself Rather than, of course, the other books of the Bible are are amazing and inspired and inerrant and needed, but there's just something special about opening up the book about Jesus, reading his words, reading what he said, and getting connected with our Lord one more time. Amen? Well, that's verse (laughs) 1. Let's do 2 now. Let's do 2 and 3. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So he says, I'm about to tell you about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he he lays everything that is about to happen in the prophetic word of the Old Testament. Everything in the New Testament is connected to the Old. And I've often thought before, it, it may be a mistake to think of Old Testament and New Testament as concerns the scriptures. There's obviously a very clean break. There's a language break that happens. There's a 400-year gap that happens. And it's got pre-Christ and post-Christ. But we should never disconnect them in our minds. That this is a continuation of the same story as we see here. That everything he's about to describe in this first chapter has been written by, he says, Isaiah the prophet. Now, he says Isaiah the prophet, but when we break down these quotes he gives, these are actually from two different prophets. So, multiple sources. Again, you may have a footnote in verse 2 where it says some manuscripts say prophets. And we can best attribute that to certain helpful scribes. (laughs) Well, no, no, I think he means prophets. Well, just go back to what it says. There's no need to read anything insidious into this. It's just like, like Isaiah, the prophet said. Some people say, since Isaiah was the first book of the prophets, it all falls under the category of Isaiah. Or he just quotes scripture the way we quote scripture sometimes. Like Isaiah said, and then he quotes Malachi. But don't worry, I'm getting to Isaiah. And so it's, it's, he's grounding what he's about to say in the Old Testament. So let's look at what verses he quotes. The first one is from Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Where the Lord says, Behold, I send my messenger... Literally there you could read angel, it's the same word. And he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. There's actually an allusion in the book of Malachi there, back to Exodus 23, verse 20, where the Lord told Moses, I'm sending my angel before you. And so Malachi picks up on those words, and he says, something like that is about to happen again. God is going to send a messenger. The last book of the Old Testament prophesied that a messenger of God would come to prepare the way for what? It tells us in Malachi 3 verse 1, for the Lord to come to his temple suddenly. And that the one in whom you delight is coming So, one of the last promises we get in the Old Testament is, be on the lookout for my messenger. Because when you see him, you know that the Lord is right behind him. And in fact, if you jump to the end of the book of Malachi, chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, he says it again. He says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes that I will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So he makes it a little more specific. Elijah is going to come. Wait a minute, but Elijah is going to come? Hasn't Elijah already come? Well, Matthew eleven fourteen, 14, Jesus tells us that that prophecy was fulfilled by John the Baptist. That it's not that he was Elijah himself, but he came in the same way Elijah came a wild wilderness man preaching fiery messages that got him in trouble with the king. It's the fulfillment of that prophecy where he says, I'll send you this prophet before the day of the Lord comes and his job will be to stir up the spirit of the people so that they will be ready when the Lord comes so that they will not be destroyed by the Lord. And then we know how that went, unfortunately, that the people were prepared, but they did not receive the Lord when he came. And then destruction did, in fact, come upon the land. So that's the first part in verse 2 there. He says, Behold, I will send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. Then in verse 3, he quotes from Isaiah, chapter 40, verse 3. But I'm going to read a few verses in front and in back of that, okay? There's actually a pretty strong break in the book of Isaiah. From chapter 39, 1 through 39 is all, Woe unto you, and you, and you, and you. It's not a, not a very pleasant read. But then you get to chapter 40. And it says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And here it comes. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So, Isaiah prophesied that when the Lord comes, it's going to mean comfort and pardon for sin. And so he says what will happen is somebody's going to come to prepare the way of the Lord. Now this is the messianic hope that one day God is going to send someone to save and restore the nation of Israel. And the Old Testament promised that before that happens, before the restoration of all things, there will come a man in the wilderness who will proclaim the imminent arrival of the Lord. That he would be a moral voice calling the people to ready their hearts to receive the Lord. Get ready for the Messiah. And so in Mark chapter 1 verses 2 and 3, he says, how did this all start? It started with the fulfillment of those prophecies. That the forerunner came. The herald of the king showed up. Elijah appeared in the wilderness. Ever since Genesis 3.15 when the Lord said, I'm going to send someone to crush the head of the serpent, we've been crying out and waiting for a Savior. The whole Old Testament has been building to that, that we need somebody to fix all this. And the Lord said, I'm going to do it. And you'll know that he's coming because there's going to be a voice in the wilderness getting everybody ready. Calling the people to get ready for the Lord. And you know, people are still crying out for the Lord. They're still, even unknowingly Reaching out, grasping blindly, the word says, looking for God, looking for answers, looking for truth, looking for purpose. But as we're going to see, there's some preparation that has to take place. And it's not always pleasant preparation. In fact, the Lord is going to call us out to the wilderness, maybe not physically, but spiritually, to get ready for the change. But Mark announces that all of our hopes, all of God's promises were about to come true. He quotes from the verses, and then we get to verse four. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. I think the best way to punctuate these early verses, the best way to look at it, having looked at the Greek, is to view the quotations from the Old Testament prophets as as a parenthesis. He's like, as it was written in Isaiah the prophet, and he gives a few examples, and then he gets back to what he's saying. So, if we read this, leaving aside the parenthesis, it reads like this, as it was written in Isaiah the prophet, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness. He's saying everything that John did was just as had been prophesied. I don't know if I need to remind you, but I think I will. The New Testament categorically endorses the Old Testament. We are not like Muslims, for example, who believe that, well, yes, the Old Testament is inspired, but it's got lots of problems. You can't really trust it. No, no, no. The opposite of that. It's all inerrant, it's all infallible, and it's all inspired. So as it was written in Isaiah the prophet, John appeared. And in fact, it uses the same exact words and construction. As he said that someone would come out in the wilderness, here came somebody into the wilderness. The fulfillment of the one who would prepare the way of the Lord was fulfilled in John the Baptist. Every gospel story begins with John. Even in Luke, where he's telling the story of the birth of Jesus, he begins first with the birth of who? John the Baptist. Even in the Gospel of John that starts out with this cosmic, epic, metaphysical introduction. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He doesn't get more than a few verses in then he says. Now, the story all starts with this guy named John. Now, John is not the Messiah. don't get that wrong, but he came to testify about the Messiah. Matthew, same thing. Mark doesn't waste any time. Characteristic of the Gospel of Mark. Jumps right in. When Peter traveled around telling the story of Jesus, he always started with John the Baptist. And that's how the early church understood it. In fact, in Acts chapter 1, verse 12, when they were trying to replace Judas, and they eventually, of course, replaced him with the apostle Matthias, they said, if you're going to be one of these 12, you have to have been there since the beginning. And how do they define the beginning? They had to have been there when John was baptizing. If they didn't see John, you really haven't been there since the beginning. So that's what we have, that John appeared baptizing in the wilderness. I I love to think to myself what the buzz in Israel might have been around this time. Judea and Samaria and Galilee and the Decapolis and the surrounding regions. You heard about that that crazy preacher out by the Jordan? No, what are you talking about? Well, I went down to, you know, I had to take something over to across the river or I went fishing with the buddies and there's just this, Crazy hairy preacher hollering at the top of his lungs and dunking people under the water. What? Yeah, I've heard about that. And then say, so, hey, I couldn't help here but overhearing what you guys are saying, but have you heard him preach? No, I kind of kept my You've got to go back. You've got to hear him. This is he might be the Messiah. Oh, come on. No, I'm serious. You've got to go hear him. But they get out there and I believe that if you read the text carefully in the other Gospels, that John was a Nazarite from birth, just like some of these other guys were. This this hairy beard and hair and skinny as a rail living out in the wilderness and out there preaching a hard message with unique methods in the wilderness. In the wilderness. Baptizing. Now, the Greek word for baptize is not complicated, friends. It means to soak or immerse. That's what the word means. We transliterate it to baptize and then we debate the meaning. There really is no debate to be had. If you want to have a different form of baptism in your church, that's fine. But the word means to dunk or immerse. Even some of the older Greek authors would use this word to mean to be overwhelmed by something. Or that if somebody was drunk, they'd say they'd been baptized. Meaning they were full up. (laughs) They were immersed with this. Now, that's obviously not biblical language, but you get the sense of the word. That people would come to John and say, what do I do? He so, I'll tell you what you do. Bloosh. Dunks him under the water. Bloosh is not a Greek word. That's just my own. <laughs> he immersed men in the water. Now, why is this a big deal? I mean, we, we get baptized. We kind of know what it means. Even somebody who doesn't know anything about religion knows what being baptized is. But why was this significant then? Because baptism was something in this culture that was reserved for proselytes. If you were a Gentile and wanted to become a Jew, You had to go through Torah training, you had to be circumcised, and among other things, you had to be baptized. We have found these archaeologically in the the land where they would have these synagogues with these baptismal pools where you would walk down into the water, you kind of walk in as a Gentile, and you'd come out as a son of Abraham. You were baptized, you passed through the waters. Well, here's John doing this for Jews. He's baptizing sons and daughters of Abraham. It would have been incredibly offensive to these people, which I, I don't want to beat a dead horse because I already mentioned this some. But uh, there's this growing thing that I see where people want feel like we don't emphasize the Jewishness enough of Jesus and the apostles. First of all, I think we do a good job with that. But also, it's like you need to also remember that Jesus and John the Baptist and these other men were stating in no uncertain terms that they had made a wrong turn somewhere. And you needed to get back. And all these traditions that we love and revere and these people even want to reinterpret the New Testament by the intertestamental traditions were the things that John and Jesus came to explode. He says, you all need to be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. That was the response. They'll tell you in Bible college, it's always good to have a response to your message, right? What do I do? Come get baptized. But what was the message? Repentance. For the forgiveness of sins. That's what every prophet says, right? You gotta repent. Now, the Greek word he uses there is metanoia. It means to change your mind. When you use little Steve Jobs here, to think different, right? That's what repentance means. Stop thinking about your life and God and your sins the same way. The Hebrew word for it in the Old Testament is shuv, and it means to turn around or to return or to come back. I think you put both those together, you get a pretty round definition of what repentance is. It means to renounce the old life and start living your life for God. And John is saying, you need to do that so that you can be forgiven of your sins. And the symbol and the, the action step that you take to consummate that is to be baptized. And friends, we still do that. We're baptizing today because Jesus told us to, but we're baptizing because John started baptizing people. This was all part of the message. He was out there to get people ready for Jesus. They were banking all of their hopes in the rituals and in their nationality and ethnicity and in their, their traditions. But John and Jesus knew the word better than them all. That David himself had written in Psalm 51, you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise repentance. David understood that. David knew, I can't go offer sacrifices to you if I've not broken my heart before you first. If I've not repented first, then the rituals will mean something. In the same way, repentance gets us ready for Jesus. You've got to come to the place where you realize, I can't live like this anymore. And if you might think, well, that's Old Testament, that's John the Baptist. No, we're going to see in verse 15 that this was Jesus' message too. Jesus went out and and the way he opened every message was repent. Well, that's Jesus and that's John. It's a different dispensation now. No, Luke 24, 47 says it was foretold that repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed to the whole world starting in Jerusalem. So it was John's message, it was Jesus' message, and it's the church's message repent you simply cannot offer good news to anyone who has not yet first heard the bad news and there are some people that will criticize the church for being overly negative when we get to a season of time where we have to re-emphasize the bad news if nobody believes they're a sinner we're going to tell them you must be saved and they're going to ask the logical question saved from what why and it's you see people that will rant and rave against the church for the things that we say, not understanding that there, there needs to be a fundamental shift in who you are. Well, people don't want to hear a message of repentance. Oh, are you sure about that? People came flocking to John. Isn't that amazing to consider? They came from all over. You kind of miss the nuance here in verse 5 in the English. where He says, all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him. Country of Judea is literally the Judean countryside. Country as in contrast to the city of the, literally, the Jerusalemites. So what's he saying? All the people living in the country and all the city slickers, everybody was coming to John. This wasn't reserved for, you know, the the backwoods folks. This wasn't an inner city thing. This was everybody coming to Jesus or coming to John at this point. They'd come to Jesus later. And they were publicly confessing their sins. That's something we don't do so much with baptism anymore, but this would have been part of it. They would come to John, why are you here? Why do you want to be baptized? And they would announce what they had done. And then everyone would watch them be baptized and come up and he would say, I declare you to be forgiven. Now watch for the one who is to come. What better news is there than forgiveness? That's what Jesus came to bring. And what did John do to start? He started to bring the knowledge and the dread of sin to the people of Israel. That's what prepared them for the work of the Lord. And that should be where our prayers center in the lives of those that we wish to be saved. That there would be a knowledge and a dread of sin. Because until that comes, there's really nothing to be done. That prepares us, which is what John was doing, preparing people for the sacrifice for sins that Jesus would provide. Let's talk a little bit about John here in verse 6. Oh, what an amazing man. What was he like? Well, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Now, you may read that and say, well, isn't that kind of how they all dressed back then? No. (laughs) We have a bad habit of doing this. Just because it's a long time ago, everybody was dirty, mangy cavemen scrounging around. That's not how it was. Just because the ruins are dirty now, doesn't mean they were dirty back then. This was unusual enough that Mark wrote it down. What did he look like? He was weird, man. He wore camel's hair. Like, you know, some people would get silk or some people would have like woven fabric. He's like, well, I found a camel and I skinned it and now I wear that. And a leather belt around his waist. And he ate locusts and wild honey. Read their, whatever he could scrounge up in the desert. Bugs and honey. So, point being, he would not have been a rotund fellow. He would have been skin and bones, probably an awful lot of hair, kind of a wild man living out in the wilderness by himself. Think of like an old prospector from like the gold rush, but wearing a camel hair suit. And that's, that's about what John the Baptist would have seemed like to everybody. Quite the wilderness wild man, isn't he? We should be careful when we preach too strongly against certain forms of asceticism. Now, Paul is very clear in the books of Colossians and elsewhere that those that insist on the affliction of the body doesn't do anything to help your soul. However, there were plenty of people in the Bible that God set aside for a time for the ascetic, those ascetic purposes to prepare them for what he had. That John is the closest thing to a monk we have in the Bible, him and Elijah. Which is, makes sense because he's sort of the, the second episode of Elijah here. He dressed in this simple garb. He's eating only what could be found in the desert. He had renounced the old life entirely. That's the picture you are to get of John the Baptist. There was not a thing attaching him to the earth anymore. Not even the things he ate. Not even what he wore or where he lived. It was all God all the time. Now, do we all have to live like that? No. Jesus is going to be in stark contrast to John. In fact, it says in Matthew 11:18 uh, 18, that they accused John of being possessed. Because who eats like that? What weirdo lives in the wilderness, eats bugs and honey, dresses up in camel hair, and then comes shouting out and dunking people? In a, Dude's possessed. But then they accuse Jesus of being a glutton and a drunkard because he went to all the parties. We always think of Jesus more like John the Baptist, but Jesus is like, I'm living life. I'm living life, and I want you to be able to live life. But there are those that God calls aside for these special purposes. We see in 2 Kings 1 verse 8, Elijah also dressed similarly. Zechariah 13 4 refers to a cloak of hair as a prophet's garment. So you're supposed to see this, and it reminds us of these other Old Testament men. But if you read Luke chapter 1, you know that John grew up as the son of a priest. He was was in a family that was somebody. He wasn't, you know, famous. He wasn't rich as far as we can tell, but he had a position. But we also know that he was filled with the Holy Spirit from the time he was in his mother's womb. Which tells us that the Holy Spirit was not abiding in the priesthood at this time. He was out in the wilderness. He grew disillusioned. I I love to imagine that there may have come a time where John the Baptist had just about had it with the corruption of the priesthood. I'm not sticking around anymore. I'm going to the deserts like Moses did or David did or any number of God's heroes like Elijah that were sent to the desert. And now here he comes. Who knows how long he was out there. But he and the Lord are both calling men back to the wilderness to get them ready for Jesus. Why is that? Why is the the preparer of the way not going around in the streets and preaching in the temple? Jesus would do that, but why not John? God often calls men out into the wilderness. Have you noticed that in your Bible? A lot of things happen in the desert. Even Israel, when their relationship began anew with the Lord, they left Egypt and went where? Into the wilderness, into the desert. That that's that picture in the Bible of change and transformation. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 2 through 3, God explains why he brought Israel through the wilderness. He says, you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. Here it is, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So what do you see there? That he might humble them, to test them, to bring them to the end of themselves. It's easy to say, oh yes, man shall not live by bread alone when there's a hundred drive-throughs between here and your house. When you're out by yourself in the wilderness and you're hungry, that's when you find out, is food my master or isn't it? That's where you find out all the temptations of the flesh. Am I in, in control or have I never actually been brought to the place where I had to exercise control before? And this is what it means to go to the wilderness. You know, remember those commercials, those Snickers commercials where they'd say, You're not you when you're hungry? Those were kind of funny, but I'd say the opposite is probably true. We find out who you are when you're hungry, we find out who you are when you're tired find out who you are when you're broke, when you're angry. We find out what's inside you. And that's why the Lord brings his people to the wilderness. That's why next week we're going to see Jesus is the first place the Holy Spirit takes him is where? The wilderness. That's a place of testing, being pushed to your limits. That's where real transformation can happen. God breaks you down. as The story of Jacob. He spends all this time outside the promised land, and then right before he goes in, the last thing God asks him is, what is your name? What have you learned about yourself, Jacob? Who are you? And who are you going to become? And this was John's message, not just to make everybody feel bad but to call them to make a radical wilderness transformation for the Lord. Come out to the desert. Acknowledge who you are in the desert. I know who I am in the city when everybody's watching me, but when I'm out by myself and I don't know where my food's going to come from, well, who am I? This is why people like John make us uncomfortable. This is why every hard, strong preacher will always have detractors, even among the godly. Because they teach us something that we know or ought to know about ourselves. When you come across somebody who has been to the wilderness and back, like you've, they've been in it and they've been through it and now they're back and they're talking to you, there's something in them that brings a reproach against you. Because you know, it doesn't mean you're not a disciple of Christ, that you're not a Christian, you know that there's a place that they've been to that I've never been. And that's what John the Baptist does. I love Leonard Ravenhill has a great quote on John the Baptist where he says, they could only tolerate John the Baptist for about 18 months. Took them three years to kill Jesus. John the Baptist, 18 months. And he said, why is that? Because everybody says they want a prophet until a prophet shows up. There's a reason Jesus said, you build the tombs of the prophets of of yesterday. What do you do with today's prophets? You put them in the tombs. Because deep down we know we need what they have. Israel was is being called away from the trappings of normal life to a real encounter with God. And friends, that is one of the most difficult things that we face in our society today. It's the sheer overwhelming amount of blessing that we have. Because even if we're struggling, we're going to be okay. We, we know where our food's going to come from. We know, we, if, even if I don't, okay, I don't have a place to stay. You'll have a place to stay. This is one of the difficulties we even face with the homelessness crisis is that people are given these things for free sometimes and then they turn them away. It's not that there's nowhere for them to go. It's how do we get them to stay there? That's a, such a unique, weird problem for us to face that a nation of abundance faces. And I'd rather face those issues than those of privation. However, that means that our brothers and sisters that face privation on a daily basis learn certain lessons quicker than we do. And we need to learn them intentionally because they're not going to happen accidentally. This is why we fast. So that you learn who you are when you're hungry. This is why even in the old days in the church, they would have vigils. They would stay up a long time. Why? Because they wanted to see what their commitment to the Lord was like. We don't do that so much anymore today, but there's something to be said for it. When was the last time you were deliberately uncomfortable so that you could serve the Lord. That's why mission trips are so great, you guys. Get to a place where you will not enjoy yourself. Like that, yeah, mission trips are great, but that doesn't mean that it's fun to you know hoping that you don't get some kind of sickness the next day. That doesn't mean it's fun smelling everything that you might have to smell depending on where you go. That doesn't mean it's fun seeing the poverty and the oppression all around you and going through the corruption of the various governments because it's supposed to train you and teach you to serve the Lord. We've got to learn from John. And boy, I could talk about John the Baptist for 12 more weeks if we wanted to, but let's let's just finish up with his message here, verses 7 through 8. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John did not ever exalt himself. John 3, verse 30, John said, he must increase, but I must decrease. From the very beginning of his ministry, John was telling people to look for another. And if y'all were a bunch of preachers, I would just focus on that. That our entire job is to point people to somebody else. And that's Jesus. And his message was so thorough and so effective that even throughout the book of Acts, we keep on running into people Who didn't know Jesus, but they knew about John. And they knew what John had taught them, and the church was able to take these people that were prepared and lead them almost immediately to be disciples of Christ. But imagine the anticipation. I mean, Mark doesn't give us as many details as the other gospels do, but they would say, Are you the guy? No, no, no. You're looking for the guy, you're waiting for him. What's he going to be like? He says, I'm not even sufficient to perform a task that even servants were not required to do. Hebrew tradition at this time, they'd say, you can tell your servant to do all kinds of things, but even a servant has dignity. You can't make them untie your shoes for you. Here comes John and says, I'm not worthy. Literally there, it's insufficient. I don't have what it takes. It's not like, oh, I I don't belong. It's not in me to untie your sandals. And imagine people walking away Hearing John's message, thinking, who could be mightier than John the Baptist? Who could be better than this guy? Well, verse 8 tells us what would separate this one from John. Oh, I baptized you with water. That's great. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The key promise of John. The Bible repeats this phrase all the time. This was the key word of John. I baptize you with water. You'll be baptized by Jesus with the Holy Spirit. And this also is calling back to previous Old Testament promises. Ezekiel 36 verses 25 through 27. In this very famous New Covenant passage, the Lord promised through Ezekiel, I will sprinkle clean water on you. Perhaps a reference to baptism there. And you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Joel chapter 2 verses 28 and 29. We all know this one. The Lord says it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. Again, by saying he'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit, John is promising the imminent fulfillment of God's new covenant promises. Everything's about to change. Get ready for Jesus. Repent of your sins. Be baptized in water, but look forward to the day when it's not just going to be an external change. It's going to be an internal transformation of the heart when you're immersed, not in water, but you are immersed and full to the brim with the Holy Spirit. Transformation, friends, is not just a trip to the wilderness, passing through the waters of death, but encountering God there, like Jacob encountered God at Bethel or at the brook. Before Jacob passed through the waters, he had to meet the Lord and submit to the Lord. Or Moses, who brought people through the wilderness and through the waters of of the Red Sea. But then where was he taking them? To Mount Sinai, to encounter the Lord. That's what it's all about. It's not just about admitting that I need a problem. It's not just about swearing to do better, and I promise I'll do it right this time. It's about encountering Jesus, the Son of God. What John was doing at its very best, as glorious as it was, was to announce the people's best intentions. But without a move of God and His Son and His Holy Spirit, it would just be that, best intentions. But that's the good news That Mark proclaims that we don't have to look forward to it anymore. He's come. The one that John prophesied has come. The days of the baptism with the Holy Spirit have come. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins has come. Isn't that good news? (laughs) He says, yeah, I want to tell you the story. But before I tell you that, I got to tell you about the one who came first. That was John. What was his job? To get everybody ready. Well, how did he do that? He went out into the wilderness and he called everybody to renounce their sin. Man, he, when John preached, it went right to your heart. He called out the exact thing that you were trying to cover up through your traditions and your religion. And you would come to him and say, what am I supposed to do? He would say, be baptized. We're going to die to the old life and we're going to get ready for the new one. And just before you thought, oh, this is everything I've been looking for, he'd say, wait, more is coming. Be ready because the Son of God is about to come and He's going to take away all our sins and He's going to baptize us with the Holy Spirit. But Mark says, but you know what? That's happened and we're living it right now. You and I are living this right now. We like to jump straight to the point with God when it comes to evangelism, when it comes to somebody who wants to get their life right. They come to the church every now and then and very often you have to wonder, are you even ready to meet the Son of God? Are you prepared? Many times people are not. And sometimes you can ask them some tough questions and they can get ready in that moment. But sometimes, like Jesus did, they've got to be sent away for a time. they got to be sent away until they are ready. And there's three things that John showed us here. Number one, to get ready for the Son of God, you've got to enter the wilderness. You've got to come to the place where you can acknowledge who you really are. No tricks, no distractions, no talking points, just raw, unfiltered you. And we love to think that that's something that I would really like to see. When in reality, it's the kind of thing that will send you running away screaming if you see what it really looks like. It's not a pleasant thing to see who you really are. But that's where you've got to start. Who would you be if you were desperate and hungry and tired and abandoned and alone? Because that's who you really are. Second, you must repent you got to renounce that old life. I don't want to be this way anymore. I won't be this way anymore. And die to yourself. That's the symbol of the waters. Going down into the water, dying to the old man, and coming up and walking as a new man. You must determine to change. You cannot come up to the point where you acknowledge who you are and then turn around and demand that everybody else accept you the way you are. You've only gone the first step. The second step is to say, this has got to change. But third, you must encounter the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the promised Savior, who can offer you forgiveness and transformation freely by the power of His Holy Spirit. Oh, so many want to only take it halfway and then blame the church. They'll say, you just tell people that they're sinners. What a horrible thing to tell somebody. First of all, it doesn't matter if it's horrible. The only thing that matters is whether or not it's true. But secondly, that's not where the story ends. Yes, we're all sinners, but we're saved by grace. The problem in the middle is that folks don't want to repent. They'd love to get a hold of of step three, but since they're unwilling to do step two, they're stuck at step one and they say, well, this is awful. Yeah, it's bad news, but there's good news. That's the message we have for the world. And that's the message we all have to heed tonight because there is no better news than forgiveness for sins. To have it all washed away. To be washed in the blood of Jesus. No longer having to turn the guns outward, lest anybody's stray comment remind you that you're not perfect. How would you like just to have all that forgiven? That's the forgiveness that Jesus offers. So, as John said, are you ready to meet Jesus?